0: Welcome to another episode of the Human Experience Live show. My guest for today is Dr. Peter H. Peter is the author of Nomenotics, a book in which he looks at the interplay of psychedelic Psychedelics, Philosophy, Consciousness, and Metaphysics. Peter completed his degree in Continental Philosophy at the University of Warwick and achieved his PhD at the University of Exeter, where he teaches both philosophy and skills on writing. He's been featured on platforms such as TEDx, discussing the reemergence and hidden history of the usage of psychedelics and their connection to philosophy, science, and consciousness, Peter, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for making the time. Welcome to HXP.
1: Thank you very much, Xavier. It's a pleasure to be here. So, I'm Peter, looking forward to the chat.
0: So, Peter, you know, let's let's kick this off by credentialing the conversation a little bit. Tell us about your education and, you know, how you got into this work.
1: Okay, well, um, I sp- well I've, as a child, I was always known as a sort of little philosopher, so I suppose that's always been part of my um, character. but um, I guess well, when I was about 17, I wanted to do um, Eastern philosophy because my father had a book on uh, N- nani yoga, but at the time in Britain that was, uh, didn't exist as a degree. So I did uh, Western philosophy instead, and um, got into especially got heavily into certain German philosophers like Kant and uh, Nietzsche. And um and then later on in London I um started teaching um philosophy, uh, in a college there in South Kensington in London, and um, the college roped me into teaching the philosophy of religion and theology, and that's that wasn't really uh, my thing at the time, but I um I thought okay why not, and um part of that included William James and his book. His great book of 1902 called The Varieties of Religious Experience, wherein he talks about um, mystical states induced by chemicals such as nitrous oxide and ether.
0: Hmm.
1: And um, and so I thought, OK, this is interesting uh, stuff. And, uh, I, you know, it was quite alien to me. But then co- concurrent to that, I um, was walking along these fields in Cornwall and, uh, and my brother, who was a sort of amateur mycologist, said, look, Peter, I think these are matching mushrooms there. So um and there there were, you know, quite a few, I mean like, you know, a hundred. Never found it that many again in one place. But anyway I picked them, dried them, sort of checked out that they were not poisonous or whatever, and uh tried them and it sort of changed my world. It just sort of made me realise the power of the human mind. And then when I went to see the philosophic literature, especially philosophy of mind on it, um there just wasn't that much so I thought, um, relatively speaking. So I thought I'd, uh, you know, uh, have a have a stab at it myself, and that's why I wrote Numenautics, sort of, you know, s- just just um, sort of combining philosophy and psychedelics in a way. And um, I'm still I'm still uh, sort of involved with that whole project. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, what does Numenautics mean? What does it What does that mean exactly?
1: <laughs> well, it's a word I made up. So, um, but what it means to me, it's a combination of the word noumena and the word psychonaut so the word noumena comes from the german philosopher Immanuel kant he divided the reality into phenomena which is the world we see around us in terms of time and space and causality and so on and noumena which means the world in itself the world as it really exists without our human um filter as it were
0: mm-hmm.
1: and um so it's a combination of that because you know, it's intimating in the book that you're getting a glimpse of Noom, and you perhaps you're not merely hallucinating. You're sort of getting a glimpse of the, of reality in itself. And at the same time, it's based on um, the word psychonaut, which comes from another German philosopher called Ernst Jünger. He uh, coined that in 1970. Uh, Jünger was a friend of Albert Hoffman, who invented or discovered LSD. Sure. In fact, in fact, in um, Albert Hoffman's book, LSD: My Problem Child, he he devotes a whole chapter to Ernst Jünger. But anyway, so so Jünger comes up with this uh, term psychonaut, which basically means an explorer of the mind via chemicals. So the book is a combination, really, of that exploration, but also with a touch, well, more than a touch of uh, philosophy.
0: Huh. Okay. So, you know, let's break this down a little bit. When we're defining, when we're looking at consciousness, how how do we define what consciousness is?
1: Uh, well, that's, you know, that's a huge question, as you know. And... Um, <laughs> I, I, um, In the PhD I I completed quite recently, I've got a chapter devoted to that question, really. I prefer the word sentience, which is an umbrella term which includes consciousness but is more than consciousness. So for me, consciousness is um, opposed to subconsciousness, but both of those are are forms of sentience. And within that, we can distinguish many different modes. For example, we can distinguish um, reason – and knowledge the power of reason knowledge we can we can um have another category of perception which includes the traditional five senses you know sight he- hearing and so on but also perhaps more than that like perhaps another sense that Whitehead calls uh, causal efficacy which is a kind of primal uh sensing of uh emotion the emotion within the world hmm. um we can also talk about other forms, such as the speed of consciousness, the duration of the um, present, mm-hmm. uh, the specious present, as it's known. We can talk about um, memory, imagination, and then we can subdivide that into uh, dreams and hypnagogia,
0: sure.
1: uh, mystical states. I mean it's yeah it's it's there are many many elements that make up what what we can call sentience, but I think you can at least list it enumerate it one way that I like to think about it as well more generally is from Bertrand Russell, and he says um the mind is that which we know without inference, right so what that really means is we we know the physical objects around us by inference you know we mm-hmm. see the colors and whatever and we infer that those colors and tastes and whatever were caused by external objects but our consciousness itself you know our, the the colors we have the qualia as it's known the experience that we don't infer that's directly known by us so that's that's a quite quite useful distinction i find
0: so i mean i mean surely this aspect of sentience puts us uh, you know, at the top of the species, uh, I mean, versus pre-hominid apes or something like that, sort of rummaging around for you know, these hallucinogenic mushrooms. You know, they this these shrooms affects us differently than these other species. I mean, would you assume that? Presume that?
1: Um, it's. <laughs> I would assume that, yeah, but at the same time, it's hard to know what it's like to be another species. I mean, they did this really interesting experiment last year where they gave MDMA to an octopus. And we don't know what it was like to be an octopus in ecstasy. However, you know, ecstasy used to be known as empathy. And the behavior of the octopods was quite strange because they started getting very cuddly and, you know, sort of seemingly empathetic. So it seemed to affect them the same way, even though, you know, the octopus brain is very, very distinct from our human brains. So, um, but, you know, uh, these things, I mean, human neuroscience is is still in its infancy and the neuroscience of other creatures even more so. I mean, it's my personal belief that sentience is not, you don't necessarily need a brain to have sentience. And again, this was what my doctorate was on, something called Mm panpsychism, which is the view that sentience exists throughout nature, but in different degrees, just like the complexity of matter exists throughout nature, but in different degrees of complexity. So I'd say there's a basic form of sentience, perhaps not consciousness, but something more like akin to subconsciousness, even in plants, but going down all the way down.
0: Mm hmm. You talk about you talk about something that you would term a, a hard problem of consciousness, and then you get into qualia. What are these things? What is the hard pro- problem of consciousness? <laughs>
1: uh, okay, well, um, the hard problem of consciousness uh, was coined by an Australian philosopher called David Chalmers in nineteen ninety-five, and but it's an old problem. It's also known as the mind matter problem, the mind matter mystery, and it goes back hundreds of years, if not thousands. But it's it's basically this. What is the relationship between m- matter, or the physical, and mind, or consciousness, or sentience? Um, it's, 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 it's a real mystery to philosophers, psychologists, uh, scientists, everybody. Because essentially it boils down to this. How can something that moves, in other words, like impulses within the brain, or the passing of uh, chemicals, how can something that moves be the same as or cause uh, something that seemingly does not move, such as an emotion, mm-hmm. happiness or sadness or something mm-hmm. like this. How does emotion cause emotion? Um, is it is it that the movements within the brain or whatever it may be um, are identical to a mental state? That seems very hard to believe. It was believed in the mid-20th century, a theory called psychoneural identity theory, um, it's, it's difficult to believe because, for example, um, neurons have certain spatial properties, like, uh, you know, the general patternation over time, and their correlated imagery, let's say a purple triangle, has different spatial properties. Therefore, you know, you'd have to say that the same thing has two sets of spatial properties, which seems uh, absurd. Uh, so... So when people sort of dismissed that identity theory, that mind and brain were identical in the mid-20th century, what emerged was really something called emergentism, of functionalism first, but emergentism, which is generally the idea that the brain causes the mind to exist. But the problem with that is um, there are no known uh, laws of nature that that uh, exhibit that Causation, you know, there's um, it's called in uh, in philo- philosophic terms, it's called a uh, transordinal nomology, or bridge laws. The the these are not laws of nature as we understand it. Secondly, it's problematic because if you want to believe in free will, in mental causation, which most philosophers do today, um, it's very hard to say how some. Th- Something that emerges the mind can feed back and you know, make your legs move and so on and so forth There's a problem of mental causation So so um, yeah that in a nutshell is the the hard problem of consciousness how mind and matter relate and uh, No, although a number of people think they know the answer to that nobody agrees and there are several theories out there
0: So this is the main sort of concern that philosophers are looking at
1: It's the main concern of Main concern for I should say philosophers of mind such as myself,, okay um, but other philosophers you know they look at ethics and they 're not concerned with us at all. you know might look at poly, you know political philosophy or a, or a epistemology, which is the theory of knowledge or a, so on and so forth, but I think that this is a fundamental mystery to not only philosophers, this hard problem of consciousness but but to scientists as well. I was just reading um a book by uh, Carlo Rovelli called The Order of Time, a physicist. And um, he brings in a lot of philosophers, actually. But he, his understanding of, of sentience of consciousness is quite limited. And and I'm reading it and I'm thinking, listen, there's there's so much more that uh, could be said about time, the nature of time, when you um, involve consciousness than can be said – in by simply you know uh, mathematics and physics per se, as we have it today, so it 's my belief that in the future um the philosophy of mind and psychology um will be fused with physics you know basically will to create a greater cosmology uh, that that uh, explains more of the sort of anomalies and phenomena um, that we 're working on today
0: hmm okay okay it 's interesting we 're building the story here i mean you you talk. You talk about how the brain filters subjectively uh, consciousness, right? So, I mean, how does how does that work? How does how is the brain filtering what we experience and and see?
1: Um, well, I suppose that due to evolution, we have senses for certain parts of reality. Uh, the sort of basic example would be the electromagnetic scale. So, we humans can see. You know the colours that we see, but that's only a fraction of the electromagnetic scale. Other animals, like bees or deer, can see ultraviolet. They see when a bee sees um, what we see as a plain white flower, they might see a beautiful pattern or whatever, right? Um, and and that's just electromagnetism. There are, you know, we can only also hear a fraction of uh, auditory waves, like sound waves. Um, we cannot. We are blind to. Uh, gravitational waves, you know except on the macro scale, we're blind to uh, microscales as well, you know the machinations within atoms and so on. Um, we are also blind to the sentience, mostly blind to I should say the sentience of other organisms. This is another problem in philosophy of mind called the problem of other minds. How do I, how do I know that you have consciousness? You know, mm-hmm. I know that I have consciousness. It seems that I infer that you have consciousness. Mm-hmm. But I can never be sure. And, and if I can't be sure about humans, uh, how about other animals? I mean, Descartes, the founder of modern mathematics and modern philosophy, René Descartes, he said he thought famously that only humans have uh, you know, minds and not even his uh, dog had a, had a mind. You know, they were just more like automata robots uh, he did make an exception for magpies strangely but uh, generally there's this this problem that we um we are yeah we're blind to the sentience of others um we're blind to most of the physical forces of which uh, our science tells us is out there so we are very very and why are we because well for example Henri Bergson the French philosopher he said um you know we've only evolved to to perceive that which is a practical utility to us practical use to us um we just in our evolutionary past we just have not had the need to see you know x rays and infrared and whatever um today of course we've got technology which can translate those waves into audible waves for us you know with x x ray x X-ray, uh, rays and uh, infrared glasses and so on um but but um it's quite clear that we are yet yeah, filtering the world um according to our needs and um Perhaps it's the case that we are simply not equipped to understand reality um, as it really is. But uh, at the same time, we seem to be making some headway in um, understanding more and more about what's out there.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is where psychedelics kind of come in, right? Because they change those filters. They allow us to see this this other realm, whether we 're entering it or, or something else, or whether it 's you know sort of removing this filter that we 've got sort of set up in our our paradigms, our belief systems, and you you talk about how you know psychedelics are reemerging into mainstream culture but but also you talk about how much it 's influenced the philosophy of our past so so let 's get into modern mm. modern philosophy now where it is but also how we got to to the place we're at now because you talk about plato drinking ergot which is the precursor to lsd and there, there are it seems that there are more and more of these experiences that are denoting this sort of i don't know this pres- presence of psychedelics throughout human history
1: yeah and no, it's quite a, quite a quite a fascinating um Line of inquiry, really. So Albert Hoffman, whom I mentioned, who discovered LSD, he, he wrote a text saying that he believed that – well, let me go back. So in ancient Greece, uh, two and a half thousand years ago or so, um, there was this religious festival known as the Eleusinian Mysteries. And uh, these were held – there was a greater and a lesser mystery, but these were held once a year. And edu- everyone who could speak Greek was allowed to partake of this. And ultimately, it involved taking a potion of a specific dose after one has fasted, and then going into this darkened temple. And, um, but one was forbidden to speak about it. And um, however, it's clear that the great philosophers, like all the other Greeks, um, were initiates in these mysteries. Um, and Plato one of the you know the greatest really of the ancient greek philosophers although he didn't explicitly write about it he intimates it quite a lot like um characters walk along the river Elisos, which is the the location of the lesser mysteries and so on and he talks about um he says that he wants to be counted as a mystic as amongst the mystics mm-hmm. and then he talks about this great vision in the in um in in a, in a few books well in one book, two books particularly the Phaedo especially, and um, the Phaedrus, and um and he talks about his uh, soul leaving his body and so on in this vision, and then thereafter he tries to come up with logical reasons as to why uh, mind and matter are um, not identical. Uh, in fact, are two separate substances, and this is what we call in philosophy substance dualism. So it seems that uh, these these uh, visions inspired uh, his dualism, which was extremely influential in um mod in Western thought. I mean, uh, a lot of people, like Nietzsche, says um, Christianity is Platonism for the people, right? And um, and so Hoffman then thought that within these mysteries, there was uh, the potion was psychoactive. And contained ergot. Why? Because, well, um, there were these uh, barley plains adjacent to the Eleusinian mysteries and ergot is a, uh, a fungal parasite that grows on wheat, barley and so on. So uh, there's other theories as to what it was as well. Um, but it seems quite likely that it was some kind of psychoactive substance. I mean, I should say at the time, wine in ancient Greece wasn't like wine today. It was highly psychoactive. Uh, substance in itself, so it, wasn't, it was not unknown these substances. Hmm. Anyway, um, so it's, if if White, Whitehead, the philosopher Whitehead, is someone I I uh, deeply admire, he he wrote that um, he famously wrote that all um, European philosophy is but a series of footnotes to Plato. And if it's the case that Plato's philosophy was inspired by psychedelic intake, it means the whole legacy of Western philosophy really is, in one sense, one can sort of conjecture triggered by psychedelic intake. Hmm. And, of course, philosophy was the same as science until um, a couple of hundred years ago, really. So the whole of Western intellectual development, one could argue, has a debt to the role that psychedelics played in ancient Greece.
0: Yeah, and it seems like there is this reemergence happening now. I mean, people are talking about this. It's been in legislation. They they're talking about decriminalizing mm-hmm. uh magic mushrooms and and peyote and and these other compounds that are just seemingly just part of nature. I mean, this is this is something that's available to to mm-hmm. everyone, and it it should be, right? So, yeah. it, it back in ancient times, did you have you noticed in your research that these psychedelic compounds were available to a certain class and not other people?
1: Um, well, there were some restrictions placed on them, like I said. For example, then the Kaikion, which was the potion in the Eleusinian Mysteries, that was only allowed to be taken um, at the temple and uh, by, administered by priests. However, there were other sort of uh, concurrent Dionysian festivals going on as well, where it's likely there were other chemicals taken but it was always in a ritual set, setting there were there's one case actually in ancient Greece of a aristocratic youth who um who uh, plays out performs a, a sort of a mystery rite in his own home uh, in other words he he probably took um the, the kaikion in his own home mm-hmm. and he's severely reprimanded um by the state when that happens i suppose because these you see, in the Eleusinian the Eleusinian mysteries were um, the function was to stop one fearing death. So they were, you know, very sacred uh, activities, and certainly not nothing to be taken trivially um, or recreationally. Um, but what happened historically was that those mysteries festivals, or the Eleusinian ones, were closed down by. Uh, the Christians or the Romans who had just converted to Christianity so in the 5th century AD um, Emperor Theodosius who was a Christian he closed it down and after that it seems that um, Christianity then as you know became you know very dominant to say the least in uh, Western culture and it seems that it monopolized all mystical states and um, and thus uh, psychoactive uh, compounds were sort of generally omitted from that with some exceptions maybe but but um i think now you know with the enlightenment a few hundred years ago then um we move away from christianity to a certain extent um the church certainly hasn't got the power it once had here in europe at least and in in sort of middle south america it still has more power but certainly in europe western europe it has very little power now um ostensibly at least and so we can return to um, more pagan or more secular versions of spirituality that don't involve um, uh, sort of a, an intermediary priest. And I think part of that is um, the taking of psychedelics as well. It's sort of like a, a, a kind of direct mystical experience. Some people say that this is a western way of thinking about psychedelics but you know um i think it's a legitimate way of thinking about it and um and so i think the prohibition on psychedelics that we've seen the last sort of 50 years is a bit like the prohibition on alcohol in the u.s in the 1920s you know it lasted what 10 years there Mm -hmm. prohibition lsd is probably going to last you know about i don't know 60 years or so but we see it closing down now Um, i think the science is beginning to show that these compounds are Relatively harmless. I remember Imperial College did this um, chart of the harms of drugs, and um, right at the bottom was uh, psilocybin, you know, the magic mushroom sure. uh, a compound. And so, when the science is there, and when you realise that these these psychedelic drugs at least don't cause harm, I, I mean, they don't relative to like alcohol or cigarettes or whatever, or heroin, perhaps. Um, I think it's very hard, and moreover when the science is showing that they have therapeutic potential as well again it's you know imperial but also johns hopkins many universities now are showing this um it's it's very hard to maintain a line that psychedelics are somehow uh, immoral or should be you know kept criminal or or um or even taken lightly i mean um just, the science and reason and history is just not on the side of these prohibitionists so so it's, it's nice to see um these drugs being decriminalized now.
0: Yeah, slowly I mean, but surely. It, yeah, it's it's really fascinating to me. I mean, you talk about these main figures in philosophy like Sartre taking mescaline you talk Mm. about uh carl jung einstein i mean uh, and then you connect it to you know some of the greatest thinking that that's ever occurred into psychedelics i mean is this something that should surprise us should we be surprised that psychedelics are kind of removing this filter reality filter so that we can access this sort of mystical higher knowledge
1: I think it surprises many how um, some of the greatest thinkers um, were experimenting with these drugs. I mean, um, the first sci- scientific psychonaut, as I call him, was uh, the local, local man, uh, Sir Humphrey Davy, who was a chemical philosopher. We'd call him a chemist today. But in 1799, he was experimenting heavily with nitrous oxide, laughing gas. And um, he was taking, he was taking a, a, you know a lot of it in 1799, to the to the extent where he, on Boxing Day 1799, he stepped into a uh, an airtight box like a Tardis and inhaled 160 pints of the gas. <laughs> and as he stepped out, he took another 40 pints just to be sure, you know. And then he said, and then he, you know, the, the fascinating thing is, and this is this is all reported in this book of 1800 and his notebooks of the time. He said, you know, um, everything, all that exists is thoughts, right? So and and by which he meant um, idealism, which is a philosophical stance uh, from Kant again, you know, related to the, the word noumena, um, which is the view that um, the matter and the space and the time we see around us is actually a projection of our minds, projection of thought, as it were. Mm. So these at the start of the scientific investigation into psychedelics, we see an immediate link to kind of metaphysics, you know, like um uh, the fundamental study of reality uh, which often in view, involves the mind and so we have this ideal of idealism immediately coming through with the first studies of psychedelics and um, that was linked to um, the German german philosophers of the time so humphrey davy was um he's known as a great chemist you know he he was the second scientists to be knighted after newton and he discovered barium and a number of other elements and he invented the miners safety helmet and uh, safety lamps are in and and so on but um he uh he was friends with coleridge with the poet coleridge wordsworth de quincey to some extent um robert southey the poet laureate and uh, many of these were, most of these, in fact, all of these were very much interested in the German idealism current at the time, you know, especially Kant's transcendental f- uh, f- idealism. So we see that, but academic philosophy in England, at least, doesn't become idealist for another 70 years in the 1870s with people like MacTaggart and Green and, and Bradley and people like that. So um, it seems that the psychedelic is a c- sort of... Can offer a, a direct experience of what can interle- later intellectually be understood, but um, I think there's a good case to bring them bring them back together again. So um, it's I, th- I think psychedelics are a great tool to augment metaphysics and the philosophy of mind. I mean, how can you really study the philosophy of mind without exploring, you know, the great vast realms of the mind it just seems like uh, you know being a traveler but staying in one state you know something like this
0: yeah I mean but don't you think you know haven't we all had those experiences that seem to make sense under some sort of compound but later you know in sobriety Mm -hmm. it's like what was I thinking I mean, I was out of my mind I was out of my head how could I be (laughs) thinking that
1: no, well, for sure, psychedelics also induce uh, hallucinations. I mean, I've, I've seen an octopus turn into a town, for example, and I'm not saying that has any veridical value. Um, but that's not to say that it's all hallucinations. So I think the first thing one should um, keep in mind is that, as we were saying before, you know, the, the mind is a filter, or perception is a filter of reality, which means that the world we see around us all the time, and our prosaic, common consciousness, our consensus world, that is, in a way, a hallucination itself. And um, when we take, I mean, psychedelic experiences, there's not one. There's not one thing. You know, it's so vast in itself. There are so many varieties of psychedelic experience uh, to be mapped, but certain varieties then. I think might yield a more objective uh perception upon the world, for example, um the distortion of time um there's no reason why the our present, like the specious present, should be the duration it is uh, there's no reason that we should perceive time um at the same speed or the rhythm. Uh, that we always do. In fact, again, this guy, this physicist, Ravelli, I was reading his book because he said that um, it was his experience of LSD and the distortions of time that it produced that made him wonder, well, what is time? You know, is our ordinary understanding of time correct? And um, in his book, he says, no, it's actually our not common intuition of space and time is completely wrong. It's just a very human, all too human vision. So could it be that uh, psychedelics actually break this consensus hallucination um, and give us greater direct insights into the nature of reality? I think in certain cases, but not all cases, this can happen.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, wasn't it Einstein who said reality is merely an illusion, albeit uh, a persistent one?
1: Um, Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I I so
0: so so I mean what what's happening in this state where you know let's say you're drinking ayahuasca and you're you're moving through this i don't know this hallucinogenic reality space mm. where you're you're sort of collecting information that wouldn't be available to you unless you were on this compound on this drug
1: mm.
0: how is that occurring
1: well um the active ingredient in ayahuasca. Is DMT, dimethyltryptamine, and um, I was I recently read and reviewed a book called Alien Information Theory, which um, concerns how DMT and its relationship to space. So one thing um, that numerous DMT reports uh, show is this 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 vision of hyperspace. And by hyperspace is meant more than three dimensions of space, so um, could this again be not a mere hallucination but a veridical perception? Why do I say that? Surely space is only three dimensional right and and time might be the fourth dimension, as Minkowski and Einstein say mm-hmm. well um, if you go back into the history of of a uh, you know dimensional space, you'll see that. Kant, again, first in 1747, his very first publication said, you know, the fact that space is three dimensions seems completely arbitrary, and its investigation is uh, one of the greatest things that that mankind can do. In 1854, a mathematician called Riemann, Bernard Riemann, he showed that assuming that there are more than three dimensions of space does not lead to contradiction and paradox, as people have assumed, but can create very coherent uh, geometries, and Euclid was wrong about uh, you know the fifth fifth postulate that parallel lines uh, never meet, and and then this continued, and uh, Einstein adopted Riemann's mathematics to understand space and time or space time as it became known. Um, a guy called Kaluza he uh, wrote a paper showing. Uh, wrote a paper and sent it to Einstein showing that um, if we assume an extra, a fourth dimension of space um, the Einstein's theories of relativity cohere with the theories of electromagnetism Maxwell's and um, Einstein accepted this and then quantum physics came along and people didn't think about these extra spatial dimensions directly for a while but then in the 80s you had string theory which said, okay if we accept that um, there are ten dimensions. Then we can bring together uh, Einstein's relativity with quantum physics, which famously don't cohere. And then M theory in the 90s said that actually it's 11 dimensions. And and uh, people are still working on this. So it's a sort of a hypothesis that hasn't yet been proved. But if it were right, it would explain um, uh, the coherence. So. Many mathematicians and physicists really believe in these extra dimensions, but of course we can't see them because, again, we've evolved, um, you know, we project the three dimensions of space. Some people might be able to see more than three dimensions. This is an interesting question. Charles Hinton wrote books on how to develop that visualization. But here's the interesting thing. So with DMT then and, um, and other and other psychedelics but dmt especially seems uh seems to be that people can suddenly visualize more than three dimensions of space in other words hyperspace uh could this be then the interesting question is could this be a veridical perception rather than a hallucination considering the fact that physicists generally believe that there are far more than three dimensions in reality anyway Mm So, you know, that's just one way in which one can see psychedelics as offering um, more of an insight into direct reality rather than hallucination.
0: You know, Peter, I, I really enjoy your work because it sort of connects these parallels. That, I mean, I I never would think that these ancient philosophers were using mescaline or any of these things that you've detailed. Um, but, you know, I, what I want to ask is, do you feel or believe that there could be a type of war on consciousness because of how hidden this is in our society
1: um hmm that's an interesting question i mean there were, first of all i'd say this that there was there was a sort of one consciousness in the 20th century because um a lot of people just didn't like it because it did not fit in with Established theories. So you had um theory, you know, like crazy theories. In retrospect, like eliminativism, which said that consciousness didn't even exist, or behaviorism, which said consciousness didn't really exist. It was simply, uh, you know, like a word like happiness simply referred to smiling or laughing or something like this. All of these theories led to horrible paradoxes, though, and and of course, are very contrary to common sense. So that war on consciousness um, was fought, and it seems that. Consciousness one hmm. with the uh, hard problem of consciousness coined as such in the, in 1995, as I mentioned. Um, could there be a, a war on consciousness with regard to psychedelics? Um, quite possibly, yeah, because I think that psychedelics stop, sort of impede... Certain conservative ways of thinking, um, you know, that there must be an order and things must be structured in a traditional way and so on. They sort of um, allow for very creative thinking and they also allow for a real um, objective viewpoint of the ideology in which one lives. Um, the Nobel laureate Octavio Paz wrote about this actually in terms of moral ideology. He said, and, and with regard to Nietzsche, he said, psychedelics. Um, destroy this moral ideology they they make it a farce um, they uh they make it seem completely absurd now there, what morality is is a is a is a completely different question but if we take it in that sense then of course there would be many people who want to maintain a certain ideology or a certain morality or a certain political way of thinking um who would see a mass kind of um intake of psychedelics as you know, very threatening,
0: hmm.
1: and um, you know this. Also, of course, the church. Like I said, if the church had a monopoly on spiritualism hmm. or metaphysics, and then suddenly people said, "You know what? We don't need. We don't need you. Uh, we can go directly to the source, as it were." Um, that would be a threat as well. And then you see a sort of a sort of co- coalition between conservatism and the church, which is basically Catholicism. Is that already, you know? But um, I could certainly see a big attack against psychedelic consciousness were it to become t- too prevalent, as as happened in the 60s. Um, I think another factor, though, today is that we are, unlike the 60s, well, no, that's not true. Another factor today is um, people are pushing the therapeutic medicinal value of um, psychedelics, and so it's very hard to maintain morality uh, and be against therapy, mm-hmm. so it's really hard to predict which way this will go. But yeah, no. at the moment, it's becoming liberalized, obviously.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm really glad that you mentioned the therapeutic aspect of this because something that I bump into a lot is a person that is in a situation where Western medicine has you know all but failed them. They they mm. they just you know they there's no direction for them to go. They've tried every antipsychotic medication that there is. And nothing seems to connect or work for them, and so you know a a, a story that I, that I encounter quite often now it's 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 no longer surprising is someone who is making a push towards going down to Peru and drinking having an, a session with ayahuasca, and then you know and then someone who actually goes and and goes there has this session with a shaman. The shaman mm. seems to lead them through this healing process and finally it seems like their lives you know turn a corner
1: yeah yeah no I, I it doesn't surprise me at all i mean even if there's no physiological tracing of that change it's it's like um it's the mere experience itself which can be correlated of course but psychologically speaking it's the experience itself it's just so refreshing in a way i mean again like i said there are varieties of uh, psychedelic experience but just to know that um, the vision of a leaf, for example, can be so extraordinarily beautiful and sublime. And, uh, you know, for, for many people, even such a simple thing can be, uh, you know, life changing to see to see how powerful aesthetics can be, you know, how, how much the beautiful can be appreciated Um is is a life-changing thing. I remember when I first took psilocybin from uh, Liberty Caps, um, I just thought, wow, you know, I'm really going to have to get into history and theology and art and and uh, look at the philosophy of mind in, in respect to this in more detail. It's incredibly inspiring. And anything inspiring, of course, is going to, to help your mental health, I should say. There's one danger, though, to only focus on med- the medicinal value of psychedelics. Um you sort of that is certainly a very positive aspect of them but it's only one aspect there there are and this is of course what I'm looking into like um other uh, useful aspects to it as well uh valuable aspects like um it's um its application to metaphysics like i say and, and uh, philosophy of mind and art and and so on and so forth so I understand why people are pushing this medicinal point of view uh, to make them more acceptable but we have to remember that this is not the this is not their only purpose you know they are much more I often say psychedelics are much more than medicine
0: hmm. Yeah I mean it's it's interesting that you have that frame of mind you know to come at it in more than just a perspective of medicinal because it seems like that is where everyone else is you know everyone is talking yeah. about how they can psychedelics can help you in some sort of mental way but you're saying that there there there's also a perceptive quality that can change based on our uses Mm. usage of these compounds
1: yeah there's there is um i mean um like i say yeah they have very very strong philosophical value that is to be uh, still to be mined and um you know, not that I'm against, of course, I'm not against the medicinal use of it, but um, I should just stress that, you know, we need a balance and and, um, and we need to realize that there's, that there's much more. And also I should add as well, you know, in, in, in limited cases, psychedelics can actually cause psychological damage. Um, not physically, not physiologically, but mentally. I mean, um, I have met some people who have been scarred uh, by their sort of hell-like gothic experiences, mm-hmm. which I've also had, but they didn't affect me. I thought they were just kind of cool, you know. But um, some people, especially if if you've been inculcated into like a religious family and you believe that there's there really is a hell or demons and think, you know, this this kind of a uh, dark stuff, if you really if you've been brought up that way and then you actually see it and you have uh, what William James calls a noetic experience where you think it's real, as it were. Um, this, of course, can cause a lot of uh, psychological damage, but I should stress that is rare. And of course, alcohol can cause that as well. I mean, okay, not not as in, in such a dark way, but it's much more harmful on average. Overall, psychedelics are very beneficial, but one has to one has to be a bit careful to balance it.
0: So, a, a person should be aware of their own sort of mental agency and and know you know what their limits are and and i mean experimentation and you you t- you talk about how you know even in ancient times the state regarded doing it outside of a ritual context as you know a breach of some sort of agreement that that was mm. you know necessary you know so well, go ahead
1: yeah no i mean they are very powerful um tools you know they they, they should be handled with respect and not fear, but I should say respect. They're not party, they're not party drugs, you know, like cocaine. Um, psychedelics are, are you know, imagine if, I mean, I, sometimes I say it like this, imagine if someone offered you a pill and said, listen, if you take this pill, you'll have a mystical experience like the great mystics of, eight, of past ages, you know. You wouldn't take that when you are, you know, shouldn't take that really, at least when you're going to a party or traveling on a bus or something like this, you know, you should, I think one should treat it with a lot of respect. Um, because of their power um, and their unexpected, the unexpected phenomena that can occur when taking them. So, um, so I always caution, respect—not fear, but respect—for uh, for these for these compounds.
0: Yeah, no doubt. I mean, it—it it seems like it would be necessary to have a ritualized you know, context to using these compounds and a reverence. Uh,
1: yeah i mean I think i certainly think a ritualized contact content to context sorry, is um is advisable for probably most people however there's also i mean to balance that even there's a lot of people say that you know um taken in darkness by oneself after you know not the first time obviously but you know one 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 is accustomed to them that is the greatest experience you need complete kind of um stoppage of all um external perception so that you can focus you know on the uh, inner workings as it were I mean I I always think that uh, psychedelics with eyes closed is much more sublime and epic than psychedelics with eyes open you know with eyes open you can see you know plants you know sort of waving about and walls fluctuating and and uh, so on and so forth but eyes closed I mean Wow, the thing the things that can come to you with eyes closed alone in other words without interference from the outside as it were it's just so it can be so phenomenal. I mean I I've experienced sort of traveling through galaxies seeing the most amazing crystalline sort of uh, giant spaceships which somehow seemed sentient um traveling through these strange glass escalators in a, an alien world and and uh, seeing multicolored vortexes I mean, I mean it's just a lot of pe- i say this because a number of people who've never tried psychedelics think it's just sort of pretty kaleidoscopic colors you know as you see in z- certain 60s films but it's so much more than that you know it's it's very it can be it's sometimes i see um i remember one phase as it were of a session where I just saw every now and again. I saw, suddenly saw like a pang of the most beautiful f- form, you know, object. Uh, one of them was even a robot, strangely, you know. So, but it was just the most perfect shape, um, and just the. Also, I mean the the emotions and feelings that can accompany that. You know, you can have uh, feelings that you've never had before that you can't really describe as feelings. You get this fusion of a perception and a conception at the same time. Um, like I said, possibly uh, seeing space angled to a right angle to the three um, dimensions we are, we already know. Um, communicate, seemingly communicating with other beings um, that are not of this world. I mean, all of these things happen, but I think happen much more easily with eyes closed. So... So, so, so there's a little um, kind of um, advert for doing it alone, as
0: it were. <laughs> okay, fair enough. I mean, yeah, Peter, I wanted to ask you what your concept of God was. I mean, when we talk about these connotations of these unperceivable unperce- realities, like that can only be accessed through these compounds, you know, what, is, what is your perception of, of God, and how has that changed after, after the usage of these compounds?
1: hmm yeah well i'm I'm still in conflict about about that guy actually because okay. um so i was i'm half swedish half british and both those countries are very secular really even though we've got the church of england here um very secular countries and um I was sort of de facto brought up as an atheist. I was never told that atheism is true, it's just that, you know, obviously the church is wrong. Um and then and then to add to that, I started reading Nietzsche as a teenager, and Nietzsche famously said, you know, God is dead. And um he goes beyond atheism and says actually not only is it absurd, it's actually a real danger to the human race, Christianity and its morality. And I've got that sort of embedded within my psyche now, this sort of Nietzscheanism. At the same time, I, um, you know, like I said, I'm I'm a I'm a big reader of Alfred North Whitehead, who died in 1947. And he had a sort of new conception of God, um, which instigated something known as process theology, which is based in, started off in California, really, in Claremont, where I was a few months ago. And um, his form of God is Not really the Christian form, although process theology sort of made it Christian again. Um, It's a kind of pantheistic God in a way. Um, And I'm more sympathetic to that. Or I'm more sympathetic to Spinoza's God. You know, Spinoza said nature is God. So if you're going to call it, if you're going to call God nature, fair enough. But the real question is, I think, is there, could there be an overall, uh, a sort of overarching sentience um, which is the universe, which transcends the universe? Mm-hmm. I, I, um, I mean, certainly, certain psychedelic experiences tend to push one in that that direction. Um, you can call it the Godhead, you can call it the Absolute, uh, There's many names for it. And I've had, I haven't quite had a full on experience of that, but um, hmm. so quite close, um. But uh, the problem with the word God is it's got all these connotations, hasn't it, to, you know, the religions and whatever, all of which I think are quite, quite wrong, although I'm not sure about that, of course. But, you know, in my experience, at least, they haven't shown any real strong reasons for believing in them. So, uh, yeah, I'm just going to stay agnostic on that.
0: (laughs) Understood. I mean, it's it's interesting to me, this idea and pursuing it. I mean, it's almost as if you know that there's this pursuit you're pushing the edge of of madness to you know get this idea a glimpse of of divinity taste the divine to mm. you know I, I don't know to to have this direct mystical experience of of god or what you think may be god mm. um you know i want to get into we're we're about to close up here but i i want to talk about synchronicity and carl jung and his his and he coined the word
1: yeah. What
0: what is your understanding of synchronicity, and what did what did Carl mean with when he talked about that?
1: Um, well, I must admit, I'm not a Jung scholar, and I I don't really know that much about it. I mean, I was considered Jung more of a psychologist than a philosopher, so it's not really something sure. um, I can talk about. But as I understand it, it's a, it's sort of it means um, uh, not merely coincidence, but that there is a higher purpose to what we experience as coincidences, right? Um, I, again, I'm going to stay agnostic on that. I haven't, I I can't claim that I know much about Jung, know enough about Jung at least to be able to pronounce anything on that. Um, I think that something related to it is true though. I think there could be purposes or teloi, teloses, teloi, um, of which, which, um, we act upon, which, um, which are overarching, as it were, but which we're not consciously aware of. I mean, a common example is simply the urge to uh, mate, you know. So um, although we see that from our perspective as just mere pleasure, um, there seems to be a species-wide telos directing us that way. And then the question is, could there be even higher uh, purposes that direct us which we try to understand just in an individualistic sense, but actually um, uh, which exist on a higher level. I mean, we're going up to levels of God again now. I think there's possibilities for that, but at the same time, I'm Kantian to the extent that I think that we are like uh, insects trying to work out a game of chess. You know, we can see the pieces um, um we can see them move, but we 've got no idea that they are a game no idea about the moves, the rules, and the techniques uh, that can be had and the glory of victory and things like this um so I think uh I think such things like synchronicity and uh, higher teleology and so on and so forth um we 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 humans as of yet we 're just not yet equipped. To judge one way or the other, though of course we can speculate, and of course we can hope that uh, we will evolve, you know, into uh, into uh, greater greater beings in the future, which perhaps then have greater cognitions. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is part of uh, what in philosophy we call transhumanism, sure, and posthumanism, the hope for greater greater minds to understand, you know, the greater universe.
0: Yeah. You know, I, the way that I've looked at it as is that, you know, there's this sort of peephole of consciousness and this door of perception and psychedelics seem to, you know, lift that, that veil as it were just for a brief enough period where you're seeing behind the door for a little while. And, but, but then, you know, coming back to sort of quote unquote reality, coming back to the state, it's, it's hard to retain that information. It's hard to bring it back.
1: It's hard to believe some of it as well, but you have to remember that, you know, like again, William James said that under the one, one of the four main marks of the mystical state was what he calls the noetic quality, which is the the belief that what you are experiencing at the time is real, it's veridical, it relates to an objective existence, which is not mind dependent, not dependent on your own mind. And um, when you get out of that state, you lose that noetic quality. And then you judge things according to um your own um, your your own epistemology theory of knowledge right so so then you start thinking, "Well, well, that can't be true because you know God is not real or something like this in other words, you're using your culture's beliefs and your own personal limited understanding, and perhaps also um your character you know like your your pessimistic or optimistic character to judge things. And uh, it seems that there's no real pure, there's no real pure neutral state by which one can judge things. Really, um, I think one thing one should always be aware of, though, is how our human knowledge and science is continuously changing, continuously getting getting closer and closer. It seems, although there could be paradigm shifts, of course, blah blah. blah. But um, you know, to think that our present state of knowledge is complete is final is absurd of course and um this is in philosophy this is known as a uh, pessimistic induction you know the fact that in the past we've always been wrong sort of mm. <laughs> should give us a warning that today what we think is right is actually probably completely wrong as well and when you look at the latest uh findings in in science you know i mean much of this is appears as more magical than any magic of the 19th century mm-hmm. but it Turns out to be quite valid, and all, all a lot of the sort of uh you know hardcore beliefs of the past are just today's shadows of ignorance. So um, so uh, that's why I like Whitehead in a way. He's a speculative metaphysician, and he says um, we can explain these things if we assume this, that, and the other. Although that's quite radical, but we have to understand that um, whatever the truth is, um, is going to be. Compl- very, very radical. Hmm. I mean, the hard problem of consciousness. Whatever the solution to that is, it's going to be extreme. It's going to be something that no one today would probably believe, or very few people would believe. Sure. Um, and so, you know, with that in mind, uh, one can, I think, one can start taking the experiences of psychedelics a little more seriously, at least in their creative aspects, you know, and the fact that they can um, lead to creative thought further speculations and in the fact that they can make one connect concepts that are usually completely distinct. So in that, in that creative aspect alone, they are valuable tools for the progress of mankind.
0: Absolutely. I, I love that. I love that to wrap this up with, Peter. Um, thank you so much for your time. And where can, where can people find your work?
1: Um, well, I've got a website called uh, philosopher.eu, Um, My Twitter handle is Peter Scherstet H. I've got a big uh, philosophy Facebook group called Ontologistics. That's also a YouTube channel. Um, If you want to find me in real life, I'm a research fellow at Exeter University. And um, at Exeter University, you might be interested to hear, I'm actually – me me and some others um, are organizing a philosophy of psychedelics conference. Hmm in uh, april 2020 it should be i think it's the first ever conference on the philosophy of psychedelics and um it's gonna be it's gonna be epic it's gonna be great and uh we're we're, we're, be, we're planning it now um so uh spread the word
0: yeah man it sounds great and the book is called nominautics my guest dr peter sure Stet h had some trouble with the name (laughs) finally got it Uh, peter thank you so much for your time guys we're gonna get out of here we will be back next week for another live broadcast for you guys uh if you're not subscribed to us on youtube please search for the human experience podcast make sure you subscribe to us click the bell so you get notified when we go live if you're listening to this on the podcast version Go over to iTunes, leave us a review, positive or negative. Whatever you think about the show, it helps us stay relevant. One of the common themes that I'm getting for many of you that find the show is that you wonder where we've been, how you didn't discover us earlier. So we would really appreciate that. Thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to see you next week.